I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. Ready to go back to the future? On this episode, we return to the site of the recent CBRE Institute Conference, where the major theme was looking ahead to the future of our industry, the way forward, we called it. And in between panels, I sat down with some of the great thinkers who came to offer clarity and purpose for businesses looking towards the horizon, including the guests you are about to meet. I view it as just kind of putting the puzzle pieces together, looking at the big picture, and then ultimately just making people smarter about what it is that they do. That's Erica Orange, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of The Future Hunters, a strategic consulting firm with clients from the public sector, trade associations, and Fortune 500 companies. Erica's also a widely published writer and public speaker, whose bio says she's likely to challenge core thinking. And we'll try to do some of that on this show. We'll set our sights on the future of real estate, of course, and we'll explore trends and disruptions that are driving new ways of working. We'll talk about how we interact with each other and with technology, and Erica's perspective on a phenomenon she calls templosion. That is, how current events in an age of multitasking seem to drive change at ever faster speed. We may not have a lightning-powered DeLorean time machine, but we do have insights for the road ahead. Coming up, a future hunter with a unique perspective on the evolving business landscape. That's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take, and this week we are joined by Erica Orange, COO and EVP of The Future Hunters, a consulting firm that talks about, well, the future. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And Erica is our guest, our guest speaker at the CBRE Institute here for our largest occupier clients. Uh, she and I were both on stage yesterday. I went first, she went second, and she was terrific. So well done yesterday, Erica. Well, thank you. Right back at you. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good uh, tag team effort. <laughs> you, you bet. You bet. But the tag team effort, what was fun about it was that Erica and I both looked at the future through our own lenses. But let's Let's talk about your lens, uh, Erica. Talk about what it, the Future Hunter does and what you're trying to accomplish looking at the future. Yes, so collectively, we have been doing this work for the better part of almost five decades. And the interesting thing about what we do is we haven't changed how we do what we do at all. So a lot of people assume that with all of these new technological tools out there, we have kind of adjusted the way in which we look at the future, uh, whether it's using sophisticated algorithms or data sets. And it really comes down to one thing, which is the human eye. And it's all around pattern recognition and kind of visualizing it as one big Venn diagram. So looking at how uh, kind of sociocultural trends interact with technological, economic, political, demographic, environmental, really the whole gestalt. Mm. And using a critical human-based lens to decipher what the future is going to look like. And ultimately, as I always say, what the so what means. What are the key takeaways? How does it impact a company's bottom line? What are the implications and the applications of the trends? So it's not just this really cool conceptual look at where things are going, but there's a much more kind of tactical grounding as to what it all means. So we're taking a lot of information, connecting a lot of dots, as my criminal law professor said, it's all a seamless web, and yes. then coming to conclusions that help us make 
business and personal judgment. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, absolutely. I view it as just kind of putting the puzzle pieces together, looking at the big picture, and then ultimately just making people smarter about what it is that they do. Because we are so focused on our area of expertise that oftentimes things on the periphery, uh, you know, it sounds so cliche, but it's just the low-hanging fruit that oftentimes we just miss because we're so focused on what it is that we do on a day-to-day basis. Well, I love what you're saying because I always look for trends in the real estate industry from other industries. In fact, one mm-hmm. of the things I talked about on stage yesterday, it may have sounded funny, I looked at horse racing statistics and studies, and I learned about how to invest in real estate by looking at something completely different. Is that the kind of thing you do? Yeah, absolutely. It's a if any of you are familiar with Ruben's vase, it's the optical illusion mm-hmm. where in one way you view it as the vase. If you flip your perspective, you mm-hmm. see the profile of two faces. And that's kind of what I mean by pattern recognition and how we've all trained our brains over the years to just kind of flip our yeah. perspectives to look at the things that ultimately are in plain sight, but that we just haven't been trained to see. And it gets to your point exactly. Um, it's looking for those parallels and those connective threads that Again, we're just so trapped in what is easy, what is convenient, our own heuristics. And ultimately, the hardest part of my job is just stripping away my own value judgments because it's very easy to imbue any sort of trend that I see with my own perspective. I could view something as super utopian, super dystopian, where ultimately it just is. It is neutral. It is agnostic. And then how we choose to see it, leverage it, and ultimately deal with it is uh, really the key. So just you know, staying as objective as possible. Very difficult to do to maintain, Super hard to do. To maintain yeah. objectivity <laughs> and uh, yep. in, uh, certainly in this world of all these different forms of media coming at you, yep. asking you not to be objective, <laughs> right? So let's talk about the future and how bright it is mm-hmm. and if, if we have to wear shades, uh, to <laughs> quote a uh, song there. So you use the term often templosion, talking about how the future will be different. What does that concept mean? Yeah, so Templosion is something that we've been tracking for the better part of a couple of decades. And just in the simplest of terms, it's the fact that the biggest of things and the biggest of events are happening in shorter and shorter periods of time. And we all feel the effects of Templosion because of that speed of change. We're all multitasking. We're all doing a million things at once. But then extrapolated out, we see that uh, this is happening on a much more macro scale as well. Uh, And I will use the example oftentimes, uh, and this is not a new statistic, but it continues to be true, is the fact that the average lifespan of a Fortune 500 company today is as little as 15 years. We see these rapid startups coming and essentially eating the lunch of these big giants, the pioneers of industries that are completely disintermediating how they used to do business. And what used to happen in a matter of decades then happened in a matter of years, then months, and in some cases, what we saw with COVID, a matter of weeks. And I liken what is happening uh, mostly in the better part of the last 18 to 24 months is Templosion being shot through this COVID accelerator effect. So we have felt this notion of the speeding up of time for so long, and then we just kind of like warp speed. (laughs) Like, you know, you think of Star Trek just going in warp speed, and that's what happened when COVID was introduced to the picture. Well, I knew you'd be a great guest because I'm typically the guy who brings up a Star Trek reference. I knew you would be. Yeah, that's why I tried to beat you to the punch. There you go. (laughs) So my my grandmother had an expression. She said that the uh, days are long, but the years are fast. Uh, Are the years getting faster? 
Erica. Yeah, you know, and I, I, I love your grandmother because that's an expression that I use even in my day-to-day because uh, when I became a mother, they said, the days are long, but the years are short. And I, too, have taken that just in my own kind of microcosm of now being a parent and extrapolated that out, to your point, looking at the more macro environment. And absolutely, absolutely is true. And it was true during COVID. I mean, when all of us were in lockdown, those days were long. But, uh, and our day-to-days generally can seem very long and very cumbersome uh, because there's so much happening in the world. There's a lot of responsibility heaped on each one of us. But things are happening at warp speed. Things are happening, whether it's technological innovation, whether it is the fast-tracking of work and employment and our ways of working, and even the way in which we understand demographics. You know, it used to just be these big generations having a similar frame of reference, and now we have these micro-generations that are defined very differently, and that is Templosion uh, at, at the very heart of it. Well, you talked about the way we work and, mm-hmm. uh, at CBRE. We're in the, uh, I would say, the real estate business, but we're really in the work business where people work in office buildings and industrial buildings and retail. And so there have been more changes to work in this COVID crisis than maybe any single thing, if you can call work yeah. a single thing. So coming out of COVID, what is your putting your um, uh, future hunter's uh, outlook on it? How do you think work's going to change? So this is, again, something that COVID just merely accelerated Mm -hmm. because I was banging on the workplace-to-work space drum for the better part of the last decade and a half, Mm -hmm. saying that if we change the metrics and it's all around measuring productivity in new ways, then it doesn't have to be tied to time and space in traditional ways. And a lot of people struggle to get their heads around that because we still viewed work as being tied to a physical place. And COVID upended a lot of that. But that's not to say that the office is going away. It's only to say that we need to reinvent and reimagine what the office space actually is going to look like, because it's not going to look the same. It's not, and again, it's not a one size fits all sort of thing. That's why it's not just about hybridized work, but distributed work. We're all going to pick and choose the ways in which we want to work in an economy where we don't have to physically be in one place anymore. So a lot of people can be nervous when I say that, thinking that commercial real estate and that um, physical office space is going away. And I'm here to say that is absolutely not true. The same was said about retail years ago when, you know, everything was moving to e-commerce and everything was becoming uh, digitized. And I always say brick and mortar is not going away. It just needs to figure out its unique value proposition. And that is exactly what is happening to office space today, is it needs to figure out its own unique value proposition through the lens of redesign. Well, I think you used uh, earlier in your answer, my favorite word in all of real estate. Which oh, is, ding, ding, ding. There we go. You know, there was, was a show with Groucho Marx. It was called You Bet Your Life. And yeah. when you use the magic word, a rubber chicken came from the ceiling. Well, there, there's uh, folks, I know this is only an audio podcast, but there is no rubber chicken coming from the ceiling right now. Yeah, I no, hope not. Yeah. But the word you used was productivity. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I love that word is because a lot of people talk about it, but very few people follow it. Very few people, even in the commercial real estate business, people are more focused on efficiency mm-hmm. than productivity. But productivity is the name of the game. And to quote uh, Harvard Business School, they say great companies focus on productivity. They don't focus on efficiency. So let's go right back to that. And so I know we have a distributed workforce. We can work anywhere. Office mm-hmm. isn't dead. But I'm going to take a, a 
position here. Yeah. I think people are more productive in the office than not. What's your point of view? So I agree with your point about it. So much of efficiency, let's go there for just one second. Much of efficiency is going on to smart technology and Mm -hmm. software. There's less and less of a human-based component to it. So if we view it through that lens of technologically-based efficiencies, then I think we can shift our focus towards human-focused productivity. And again, to your point, that's exactly where the kind of the needle needs to start moving. And... So some people, that's why none of this is a one-size-fits-all thing. And I will keep saying that over and over again because we tend to think of this as kind of one lump sum. But for some people, uh, working mothers, for instance, who had the burden of childcare on them and home responsibilities, uh, probably going into an office might not make them more productive. For other people who crave human-to-human interaction, who need to physically be in the same space, uh, whether it comes down to interaction, um, collaboration, engagement, all of those things that are harder to measure when we are interfacing virtually or digitally. Those are people that want to be in an office. For introverts who didn't want to talk to people and didn't have, you know, the proverbial water cooler moments— they're not craving that anymore. You know, it's like the data crunchers in the back office. They are thrilled to be working remotely. But you cannot, uh, you cannot basically supplant the kind of connection, the culture, the energy, the sensory, the tactile, all of those things. Um, even those moments of just serendipity that were engineered around you're not getting that when you're just working from home. Well, I mean, this is like Erica has seen every presentation I've ever done. Because <laughs> Mind ser- meld. Because <laughs> serendipity, that is the word I use. But I do want to go back to something you mentioned before, that it is not one size fits all. And you mentioned something about working mothers. And I think it's a very important uh, topic because we discussed it on the weekly take in honor of International Women's Day. What we discussed is that there's a double-edged sword here, right? It's easier for people to work from home particularly if you have uh, home duties. It could be child care. It could be elder care. There's lots of things going on there. But uh, one of the real challenges of the pandemic, uh, cutting right down to it, I think it disproportionately, negatively, statistically harmed women more than men for a lot of these reasons. And uh, there's studies that show this and uh, that I could show you, which is a real tragedy. Uh, be very direct about that. Mm-hmm. Um, how, do you agree with that? And how do we reverse that? Yeah, so you cannot decouple work from education. Yes. So this is less a work issue and more of a, (laughs) to say it very bluntly, a catastrophic failure of our current educational system. Mm -hmm. We know that we are going to be going through future pandemics. This is not the only one. This is a beta test. It's what I called Bitcoin all those years ago. Uh, So we have to start getting it right. And If our kids were able to, uh, basically, it it wasn't even about in-person learning. It was just about learning differently, and it put the burden on the parents. So we have to start getting that right before we even tackle it from a work perspective. And I think we're starting to move the needle when we talk about work and productivity and, you know, all those buzzwords now, uh, hybridized work. And I call it Verflex, virtual and flexible work. But we are not moving the needle when it comes to the impact on our kids and the undue burden on our families. Well, that, that's a, a, a very eloquent way of saying uh, that 
uh, work-life balance uh, doesn't exist in a way that is most productive, uh, not only for the big picture, but in particular for the families themselves, in particular for the kids. Yeah, and it never has. And it's always been a fallacy. It's always been a really nice way of putting a bow around something that has always been broken. Mm. So let's now talk about uh, is the future bright? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I use the uh, the song, The Future So Bright, I have to wear shades. I certainly hope it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, that song was not by uh, Bon Jovi, though I will say it is. Today is Bon Jovi's 60th birthday, so I had to throw that in there as well. Oh, happy birthday, John Bon Jovi. Yes, we are big Bon Jovi fans. As a little anecdote, I met my husband while he was playing air guitar on a speaker to Living on a Prayer. And he's now my business partner. There you go. You see that? So let's talk about the future. Let's just cut right to the chase. Is the future bright? So, yes and no. Uh, (laughs) So the future is bright if we want it to be. Uh, I talk a lot about technology and the exponential rate of technological change and human disintermediation and an age of AI and automation and robotics. And so many people will hear that message and think that, We're going to hell in a handbasket. We're going to have a robotic takeover. It's going to be like all of the dystopian sci-fi and that humans are going away. And I always have to do a kind of timeout, pause, stop people in their tracks and say that one of the things you can never disintermediate is not only humanity, but the human heart, human resiliency, human ingenuity. And it's, for me, one of the biggest silver linings with COVID because uh, people were very kind of nihilistic with COVID and thought, you know, it was all these doom and gloom scenarios. And I think in many ways we were triumphant. It showed the best of people, what we are capable of, what we were capable of creating. I think the rate of technological innovation is staggering. Uh, I think some of the advancements happening in whether it's quantum physics, uh, mRNA technology, DNA computing, all of these things that are just putting the human race beyond what we ever thought we could ever be or become. And that's not even getting us to kind of this transhumanist future that a lot of futurists like to talk about. Um, But it is just saying that us as a human species is creating more than we ever did at any other point in human history. And that for me is very exciting. And you look at the tools that are that our kids have at their disposal, whether it's um, 3D printing, which is unleashing imagination, and the future of that, which is 4D printing, and what's happening in virtual reality and the metaverse and all of these things that could be very exciting for us as humans. The flip side of that is that everything that I talked about can also be weaponized. And I talk a lot about how uh, one of the biggest threats, I think, to humanity right now, there are two. And one, we need to get our heads screwed on right when it comes to the climate. We had another speaker on our podcast, Brad Khan, mm-hmm. terrific demographer, strongly recommend his books. And yes, listen to that podcast too, please. <laughs> but uh, I, t- I disagreed with him a little bit because his vision for the future is that uh, we are all going to be moving to northern climates, to places with large bodies of water. Uh, everybody that lives in the south, even here in Arizona, uh, they're in for a rude awakening. Uh, because we are not going to get our act together on the climate. I take a different point of view. My point of view, and it actually comes from the conference that we're at right now. I looked out into the audience, and I saw the largest real estate owners in the world, and every single one of them has a pledge to be carbon neutral soon, next 10, 20 years, and, and other things. 
if they get their act together, and I believe that they will, I don't think we have this dystopian future. So, future hunter, Erica, will people get their act together on the climate? Uh, so, I agree more with uh, Dr. Khanna. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, here's the thing. And I, I did not see his presentation, but mm-hmm. I think that he is thinking of a much, much longer term future. Um, personally, I have to say I am more than happy to settle in Iceland. It is one of my favorite places to go, and I have been there uh, four times. So I do have to put a shameless plug in there for Iceland. So I think what he is talking about, too, is the rapid rise of these Norks, the northern rim countries. And there is tremendous growth happening there. I think in the next 5, 10, even 20 years, we're not going to see this mass exodus. But um, I think that the view that people will get their act together sooner than later in some ways... uh, is a little Pollyanna, and I don't think the view that he's taking on kind of these northern rim countries uh, is a dystopian one. It's, it really isn't. It's just shifting growth. Uh, he is also right about demographics. That is shifting all across the globe, primarily, obviously, in the developing world. Erica, I must say I don't agree with you on this one. I think that a future where we have to leave our homes wherever they may be because we didn't get our act together because of the climate is dystopian. I think that it is a future that unfortunately is one that uh, we're seeing a little bit at the present today, that people that are mobile tend to be people that are coming from wealthier countries. People that are less mobile are people that are not, and it could make a greater separation of the haves and have-nots. What do you think? Yes. So from that perspective, I think you were absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, I've been talking about climate refugees mm-hmm. for decades, and that is an ever-growing reality. And that is a very dystopian one. We never want that to happen. Um, from a real estate perspective, um, you know, I think it's just about making smarter investments. Am I going to put my money into South Florida right now? No, I'm not. Um, if the threat decades from now, and if it's something I want to pass on to my son, the reality is parts of Florida might be underwater. Parts of the Gulf Coast might be underwater. Look at what's happening in Indonesia. They have to move their capital because it's going to be underwater. Uh, So we have to get smarter about where and what we invest in. Uh, I also think that it is ushering in um, the real likelihood. That's the thing. We also design our buildings in a way that doesn't take climate into account. We need to get beyond our current materials, how we design uh, from an architectural perspective, a construction perspective, get beyond what we have always known. And I'm always one. I'm, I'm a dreamer. I love reimagining what could be. And we need to start really investing in smarter materials, uh, you know, getting together with SynBio and these synthetic biologists who have created smart materials that are weather-resistant, climate-resistant, buildings that can self-heal after a natural disaster. So if those are put into geographies that are increasingly kind of climate-threatened, that might work. But our old ways of building and designing are just not going to cut it. Well, let's, again, not to take the contrary position. Please uh, do. But the uh, one of the, in fact, the only European trip I made during COVID I made uh, was to Amsterdam. I hit a few other cities, but Amsterdam... uh, has been uh, fighting the sea for hundreds and hundreds of years with increasingly strong technology. They have the largest uh, dam system or Mm -hmm. uh, water prevention system in the world there. It's a pretty impressive system. So, yes, I agree with you. 
We need to change the way we build. We need to change the materials. We need to change where. But some of these high-density places like Miami, why can't they just put in something like they do in Amsterdam? Is that a waste of money? Uh, or would the money be better spent if we put it up in Michigan? From my point of view, these places will be resilient, much like Amsterdam has been. But you disagree with that. No. So you hit the nail on the head with the word resilient. Mm-hmm. And we don't think about how to how to redesign with an eye towards future-proofed resiliency. Everything is about speed. It's throwing up these buildings, and everyone is talking about the increased price of wood and steel and the supply chain and all of these things. And we can get beyond the current supply chain if we actually— from a materials perspective, just rethought about how we build. One of the uh, last trips, feels like a lifetime ago when I traveled before COVID, mm-hmm. uh, was to Singapore. And what they're doing from a green building perspective is absolutely incredible. And why we can't do that more in this country is beyond me. Uh, it's just, we build things, we throw kind of band-aids at it without really thinking longer term. And in terms of The biggest thing out of everything, whether it's work, education, real estate, or construction, it all comes down to future-proofing. How do we future-proof our built environment, our infrastructure, our workspaces, our own minds, and our children? Future-proofing. That's uh, another one of my favorite words, though. It did not come out of my most recent presentation, but uh, I agree with you. Future-proofing is the key, but I think it also... When you're looking at this from a a business perspective, and I presume you uh, advise dozens of companies on future-proofing, I'm in the real estate business. And my time horizon, while as a human being is infinite, uh, hopefully it's infinite, but I probably, hopefully I live to as long as my grandma best who died at 100, but uh, my time horizon is shorter uh, for most of my real estate investments. My real estate investment time horizons are typically three, five, seven, ten years. Within that time horizon... I am advising my clients to underwrite resiliency in cities like Miami or even southern Manhattan, uh, the southern tip of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, I don't think it's going to impact them during their investable horizon. Do you agree with that? Uh, or is that too much of a uh, shutting my eyes to reality way of looking at the world? So I view this as kind of being two-pronged. We need to have the near-term investment perspective. We always need to think about what's going to work for the shorter term. But it doesn't mean, and a lot of people will only focus on that one prong while discounting all of the things that we know are going to shape and determine the future. And again, it just goes back to having future-proofed strategies. And I spoke yesterday about the difference between strategy and vision. And oftentimes we are so wedded to our strategies that we lose sight of that vision. And the vision longer term has to be around these climate-based solutions and not just about these little stepwise innovations that are largely based on kind of straight-line extrapolation and really leapfrog all that we knew to get to where we need to be. And that's why I just don't think the climate goals are great. And the fact that more and more companies are adopting, you know, CSR and ESG principles and all of that, it's wonderful. But... We have yet to see real change. And maybe the proof will be in the pudding in a few years from now. But uh, 
you know, I, it hasn't shown itself to be quite yet. Okay. Well, let's go back to something you said in your presentation yesterday. And this may be – I'm trying to get you to the side of optimism here. I'm not saying you're not optimistic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think I'm more optimistic uh, than some of the things you may have suggested, even though uh, we may uh, – Agree more than we disagree. Oh, maybe I need more coffee. Get me on the optimism train. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I always think of myself as such a, uh, a tech optimist. Well, speaking of tech optimists, <laughs> a slide you put up yesterday was talking about the brains of children and how they're different mm-hmm. than our brains. Because yeah. the, my kids grew up with a iPhone or a computer or uh, all kinds of technology in their hands. Maybe... Uh, maybe I'm a fuddy-duddy because I didn't grow up like that. Uh, but maybe because these children have grown up with the um, fifth generation, as we've called it at this time, which is technology, AI itself, maybe the next generation will solve the problem. And that's a terrible thing to say, oh, it's their problem. It's not their problem. It's our problem too. But is there's something different about the brains of children that may make them more likely to find the solution. Yes, absolutely. So let me rewind a little bit. So when we in our shop were trying to define Generation Z, it didn't seem sufficient just to call them Gen Z because it told us nothing about them. So we call them cybrids, cyber hybrids. And we call them that because this really is the first generation ever to have what I would consider to be a very symbiotic relationship to the technology that surrounds them and permeates their external and even internal environment on a near constant basis. So one of the things that is most striking to me about this generation is that scientists have been looking at their brains and know, and it sounds so sci-fi, but it is true, that they have different neural wiring, different neural wiring than me, you, everyone else that is not a part of this kind of digital native generation. Now, longitudinally, we don't quite know how this is going to play out. You know, it's like they're in the Petri dish. We don't know what this is going to look like. But we do know that they could be, because of these neurological changes, much more well-equipped to deal with the bigger existential uh, questions uh, that the future is going to create. They have the ability to understand not only technology, but in some cases, even the second and third order consequences of the technology. This is a generation, I'm very bullish about this generation. I think that they are capable of really great things if they get beyond just what I would kind of consider the silly use of the technology, you know, getting beyond just TikTok and likes and shares. Uh, But one of the interesting things about them, um, and I call this capitalism junior, is that this is also a generation that have circumvented their parents, and they are creating some new kind of nexies of wealth because they're able to use these digital platforms in completely new and novel ways. They are monetizing influence in new ways through the creator economy. And that, to me, is very exciting. I mean, the creator economy is the fastest-growing small business in the world. There are 50 million creators and a lot of this is being driven by these cybrids. Well, I hope they are cybrids and not cyborgs, in which case I'm going to have to uh, uh, watch out for our own future. I know. That could be the generation coming up behind them. Please, God, no. <laughs> uh, that Terminator movie uh, scared the heck out of me when it came out in yep, yep. the early 80s. But uh, cybrids, not cyborgs. So um, we're getting towards the end of our podcast here, and I want to make some predictions. I want you to put on your forces of good and forces of not so good hat for a moment. Mm-hmm. So give me just a couple of things that you would list as next 10 years. These will be the forces for good. These will be the forces for not so good. And where are we going to be in 10 years? 
So, uh, again, it all comes down to how we leverage the tools at our disposal. I think if we leverage tools like uh, the metaverse, AI, um, virtual reality, any of these kind of new, cool, sexy technologies um, in innovative ways, we could create some incredible things, new ways of connecting, communicating, Mm -hmm. working, living, being. At the same time, there is the very dystopian reality about how they could, as I said before, become weaponized and create kind of human devolution. So it's not the tools that are the problem. It's how the tools are used. It's how the tools are, yes, because everything ultimately is neutral. And we have to trust in our ability to leverage these things in ways that do good. Um, You know, you think of a 3D printer. For me, in some ways, that could be, imagine a future where you drop 3D printers that could print food, and that could be the new way of delivering humanitarian aid. At the same time, some kid could, could create a CAD file and 3D print bullets and a gun. So it's both. The future is always both. It's and. It's not or. So uh, I have to believe in the kind of transcendent power and the good of humanity. Uh, But again, it's just how we leverage these things. I am very bullish on our ability to get beyond green and get to what I call blue, which is putting back more into the environment than we took from it in the first place. Uh, But we have to get beyond just the current limitations of cost and uh, scarcity and availability. So... uh, Again, it's a double-edged sword. So it's not to say that I am overly optimistic. I am by no means pessimistic because look at what we have endured in human history. Way worse than anything that we will ever do. This is the most beyond, and it feels very wrong to be saying this at a time when, I mean, look at what is happening in Ukraine right now. But when you kind of take an aerialist view, this is one of the most prosperous and peaceful times ever in human history. There are fewer people below the poverty line. Uh, Child mortality is at its lowest. So there are many things to be very excited about when it comes to this future because things really are trending upward. Well, that's a good way to end the show. Things are trending (laughs) upward. I have to just ask, uh, is orange the new black? I love Well, to uh, take a line out of one of my favorite movies, uh, Legally Blonde, (laughs) orange is not the new pink. (laughs) (laughs) There there you go. There you go. That's a good way to end it as well. Well, on behalf of The Weekly Take, uh, I am delighted to have had this great conversation with Erica Orange, the COO and EVP of The Future Hunters. So, Erica, thank you for joining the show, and thank you for your outlook on the future. Well, thank you, Spencer. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. For more on the Future Hunters, Erica Orange, and our show, please visit our website at cbre.com slash theweeklytake. We return next week to cover a topic that also has major resonance for the future. On the occasion of Earth Day, we have an ESG-themed episode with an emphasis on the E, environmental, featuring exclusive content, select outtakes from some of the thought leaders who have appeared on our show in recent months with additional perspective from CBRE leaders as well. We look forward to having you back. Meanwhile, we thank you for sharing this episode and encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. 
Thanks again for joining us. I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well.